Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Time Traders by Andrea Norton. Your narrator is Adam von Bueller. Volume 6 Chapter 11 It took Ross a while to learn that the dirty white walls of this tunnel, which were almost entirely opaque, with dark objects showing dimly through them here and there, were of solid ice. A black wire was hooked overhead, and at regular intervals hung with lights which did nothing to break the sensation of glacial cold about them. Ross shuddered. Every breath he drew stung in his lungs. His bare shoulders and arms and the exposed section of thigh between kilt and boot were numb. He could only move on stiffly, pushed ahead by his guards when he faltered. He guessed that were he to lose his footing here and surrender to the cold— he would forfeit the battle entirely, and with it his life. He had no way of measuring the length of the boring through the solid ice, but they were at last fronted by another opening, a ragged one which might have been hacked with an axe. They emerged from it into the wildest scene Ross had ever seen. Of course he was familiar with ice and snow, but here was a world surrendered completely to the brutal force of winter in a strange, abnormal way. It was a still, dead, white-gray world, in which nothing moved save the wind which curled the drifts. His guards covered their eyes with the murky lenses they had worn pushed up on their foreheads within the shelter, for above them sunlight dazzled on the ice crest. Ross, his eyes smarting, kept his gaze centered on his feet. He was given no time to look about. A rope was produced, a loop of it flipped in a noose about his throat, and he was towed along like a leashed dog. Before them was a path worn in the snow, not only by the passing of booted feet, but with more deeply scored marks, as if heavy objects had been sledded there. Ross slipped and stumbled in the ruts, fearing to fall lest he be dragged. The numbness of his body reached into his head. He was dizzy the world about him misting over now and again with a haze which arose from the long stretches of unbroken snowfields. Tripping in a rut, he went down upon one knee, his flesh too numbed now to feel the additional cold of the snow, snow so hard that its crust delivered a knife's cut. Unemotionally, he watched a thin line of red trickle in a sluggish drop or two down the blue skin of his leg. The rope jerked him forward, and Ross scrambled awkwardly until one of his captors hooked a fur mitten in his belt and heaved him to his feet once more. The purpose of that trek through the snow was obscure to Ross. In fact, he no longer cared, save that a hard rebel core deep inside him would not let him give up as long as his legs could move and he had a scrap of conscious will left in him. It was more difficult to walk now. 
he skidded and went down twice more. Then, the last time he slipped, he sledded past the man who led him, sliding down the slope of a glass-slick slope. He lay at the foot, unable to get up. Through the haze and deadening blanket of the cold, he knew that he was being pulled about, shaken, generally mishandled, but this time he could not respond. Someone snapped open the rings about his wrists. There was a call, echoing eerily across the ice. The fumbling about his body changed to a tugging, and once more he was sent rolling down the slope. But the rope was now gone from his throat, and his arms were free. This time, when he brought up hard against an obstruction, he was not followed. Ross's conscious mind, that portion of him that was Rossa, the traitor, was content to lie there, to yield to the lethargy born of the frigid world about him. But the subconscious Ross Murdoch of the project prodded at him. He had always had a certain cold hatred, which could crystallize and become a spur, once it had been hatred of circumstances and authority. Now it became hatred for those who had led him into this wilderness with the purpose, as he knew now, of leaving him to freeze and die. Ross pulled his hands under him. Though there was no feeling in them, they obeyed his will clumsily. He levered himself up and looked around. He lay in a narrow, crevice-like cut, partly walled in by earth so frozen as to resemble steel. Crusted over it in long streaks from above were tongues of ice. To remain here was to serve his captor's purpose. Ross inched his way to his feet. This opening, which was intended as his grave, was not so deep as the men had thought it in their hurry to be rid of him. He believed that he could climb out if he could make his body answer to his determination. Somehow Ross made that supreme effort and came again to the rutted path from which they had tumbled him. Even if he could, there was no sense in going along that rutted trail, for it led back to the ice-encased building from which he had been brought. They had thrust him out to die. They would not take him in. But a road so well marked must have some goal, and in hopes that he might find shelter at the other end, Ross turned to the left. The trace continued down the slope. Now the towering walls of ice and snow were broken by rocky teeth, as if they had bitten deep upon this land, only to be gnawed in return. Rounding one of those rock fangs, Ross looked at a stretch of level ground. Snow lay here, but the beaten-down trail led straight through it to the rounded side of a huge globe, half buried in the ground, a globe of dark material which could only be man-made. Ross was past caution. He must get to warmth and shelter, or he was done for, and he knew it. Wavering and weaving, he went on, his attention fixed on the door ahead, a closed oval door. With a sob of exhausted effort, Ross threw himself against it. The barrier gave, letting him fall forward into a queer glimmering radiance of bluish light. The light rousing him because it promised more. He crawled on past another door which was flattened back against the inner wall. It was like making one's way down a tube. 
Ross paused, pressing his lifeless hands against his bare chest under the edge of his tunic, suddenly realizing that there was warmth here. His breath did not puff out in frosty streamers before him, nor did the air sear his lungs when he ventured to draw in more than shallow gulps. With that realization, a measure of animal caution returned to him. To remain where he was, just inside the entrance, was to court disaster. He must find a hiding place before he collapsed, for he sensed he was very near the end of his ability to struggle. Hope had given him a flash of false strength, the impetus to move, and he must make the most of that gift. His path ended at a wide ladder, coiling in slow curves into gloom below and shadows above. He sensed that he was in a building of some size. He was afraid to go down, for even looking in that direction almost finished his sense of balance. So he climbed up. Step by step, Ross made that painful journey, passing levels from which three or four hallways ran out like the radii of a spider's web. He was close to the end of his endurance when he heard a sound, echoed, magnified, from below. It was someone moving. He dragged his body into the fourth level where the light was very faint, hoping to crawl far enough into one of the passages to remain unseen from the stair. But he had gone only part way down his chosen road when he collapsed, panting, and fell back against the wall. His hands pawed vainly against that sleek surface. He was falling through it. Ross had a second, perhaps two, of stupefied wonder. Lying on a soft surface, he was enfolded by a warmth which eased his bruised and frozen body. There was a sharp prick in his thigh, another in his arm, and the world was a hazy dream until he finally slept in the depths of exhaustion. There were dreams, detailed ones, and Ross stirred uneasily as his sleep thinned to waking. He lay with his eyes closed, fitting together odd bits of... dreams? No, he was certain that they were memories. Rossa of the Beaker Traders and Ross Murdoch of the Project were again fused into one and the same person. How it had happened he did not know, but it was true. Opening his eyes, he noticed a curved ceiling of soft blue which misted at the edges into gray. The restful color acted on his troubled, waking mind like a soothing word. For the first time since he had been struck down in the night, his headache was gone. He raised his hand to explore that old hurt near his hairline that had been so tender only yesterday that it could not bear pressure. There remained only a thin, rough line like a long-heeled scar. That was all. Ross lifted his head to look about him. His body lay supported in a cradle-like arrangement of metal, almost entirely immersed in a red, gelatinous substance with a clean, aromatic odor. Just as he was no longer cold, neither was he hungry. He felt as fit as he ever had in his life. Sitting up in the cradle, he stroked the jelly away from his shoulders and chest. It fell from him cleanly, leaving no trace of grease or dampness on his skin. There were other fixtures in the small, cylinder-like chamber besides that odd bed in which he had lain. Two bucket-shaped seats were placed at the narrow forepart of the room, 
and before those seats was a system of controls he could not comprehend. As Ross swung his feet to the floor, there was a click from the side which brought him around, ready for trouble. But the noise had been caused by the opening of a door into a small cupboard. Inside the cupboard lay a fat package. Obviously, this was an invitation to investigate the offering. The package contained a much-folded article of fabric, compressed and sealed in a transparent bag, which he fumbled twice before he succeeded in releasing its fastening. Ross shook out a garment of material such as he had never seen before. Its sheen and satin-smooth surface suggested metal, but its stuff was as supple as fine silk. Color rippled across it with every twist and turn he gave to the length, dark blue fading to pale violet, accented with wavering streaks of vivid and startling green. Ross experimented with a row of small, brilliant green studs which made a transverse line from the right shoulder to the left hip, and they came apart. As he climbed into the suit, the stuff modeled to his body in a tight but perfect fit. Across the shoulders were bands of green to match the studs, and the stocking-like tights were soled with a thick substance which formed a cushion for his feet. He pressed the studs together, felt them lock, and then stood smoothing that strange, beautiful fabric, unable to account for either it or his surroundings. His head was clear. He could remember every detail of his flight up to the time he had fallen through the wall. And he was certain that he had passed through not only one, but two of the red time posts. Could this be the third? If so, was he still a captive? Why would they leave him to freeze in the open country one moment, and then treat him this way later? He could not connect the ice-encased building from which the reds had taken him with this one. At the sound of another soft noise, Ross glanced over his shoulder just in time to see the cradle of jelly from which he had emerged close in upon itself until its bulk was a third of its former size. Compact as a box, it folded up against the wall. Ross, his cushioned feet making no sound, advanced to the bucket chairs. But lowering his body into one of them for a better look at what vaguely resembled the control of a helicopter like the one in which he had taken the first stage of his fantastic journey across space and time, he did not find it comfortable. He realized that it had not been constructed to accommodate a body shaped precisely like his own. A body like his own. That jelly bath or bed or whatever it was. The clothing which adapted so skillfully to his measurements. Ross leaned forward to study the devices on the control board, confirming his suspicions. He had made the final jump of them all. He was now in some building of that alien race upon whose existence Millard and Kilgaris had staked the entire project. This was the source, or one of the sources, from which the Reds were getting the knowledge which fitted no modern pattern. A world encased in ice and a building with strange machinery. This thing... A cylinder with a pilot's seat and a set of controls. Was it an alien place? But the jelly bath, and the rest of it, had his presence activated that cupboard to supply him with clothing? And what had become of the tunic he was wearing when he entered? Ross got up to search the chamber. The bed bath was folded against the wall, but there was no sign of his beaker clothing, his belt, the hide boots. 
He could not understand his own state of well-being, the lack of hunger and thirst. There were two possible explanations for it all. One was that the aliens still lived here and for some reason had come to his aid. The other was that he stood in a place where robot machinery worked, though those who had set it up were no longer there. It was difficult to separate his memory of the half-buried globe he had seen from his sickness of that moment. Yet he knew that he had climbed and crawled through emptiness, neither seeing nor hearing any other life. Now Ross restlessly paced up and down, seeking the door through which he must have come, but there was not even a line to betray such an opening. "'I want out,' he said aloud, standing in the center of the cramped room, his fists planted on his hips, his eyes still searching for the vanished door. He had tapped, he had pushed, he had tried every possible way to find it. If he could only remember how he had come in— but all he could recall was leaning against a wall which moved inward and allowed him to fall. But where had he fallen? Into that jelly bath? Ross, stung by a sudden idea, glanced at the ceiling. It was low enough so that by standing on tiptoes he could drum his fingers on its surface. Now he moved to the place directly above where the cradle had swung before it had folded itself away. Rapping and poking, his efforts were rewarded at last. The blue curve gave under his assault. He pushed now, rising on his toes, though in that position he could exert little pressure. Then, as if some faulty catch had been released, the ceiling swung up so that he lost his footing and would have fallen had he not caught the back of one of the bucket seats. He jumped, and by hooking his hands over the edge of the opening, was able to work his way up and out to face a small line of light. His fingers worked at that, and he opened a second door, entering a familiar corridor. Holding the door open, Ross looked back, his eyes widening at what he saw. For it was plain now that he had just climbed out of a machine with the unmistakable outline of a snub-nosed rocket. The small flyer, or a jet, or whatever it was, had been fitted into a pocket in the side of the big structure as a ship into a berth, and it must have been set there to shoot from that enclosing chamber as a bullet is shot from a rifle barrel. But why? Ross's imagination jumped from fact to theory. The torpedo craft could be an atomic jet. All right, he had been in bad shape when he fell into it by chance, and the bed machine had caught him as if it had been created for just such a duty. What kind of a small plane would be equipped with a restorative apparatus? Only one intended to handle emergencies, to transport badly injured living things who had to leave the building in a hurry. In other words, a lifeboat. But why would a building need a lifeboat? That would be rather standard equipment for a ship. Ross stepped into the corridor and stared about him with open and incredulous wonder. Could this be some form of ship, grounded here, deserted and derelict, and now being plundered by the Reds? The facts fitted. They fitted so well with all he had been able to discover that Ross was sure it was true. But he determined to prove it beyond all doubt. He closed the door leading to the lifeboat berth, but not so securely that he could not open it again. That was too good a hiding place. On his cushioned feet he padded back to the stairway, and he stood there listening. 
Far below were sounds, a rasp of metal against metal, a low murmur of muted voices. But from above there was nothing, so he would explore above before he ventured into that other danger zone. Ross climbed, passing two more levels, to come out into a vast room with a curving roof which must fill the whole crown of the globe. Here was such a wealth of machines, controls, things he could not understand, that he stood bewildered, content for the moment merely to look. There were, he counted slowly, five control boards like those he had seen in the small escape ship. Each of these was faced by two or three of the bucket seats. Only these swung in webbing. He put his hand on one, and it bobbed elastically. The control boards were so complicated that the one in the lifeboat might have been a child's toy in comparison. The air in the ship had been good. In the lifeboat, it had held the pleasant odor of the jelly. But here Ross sniffed a faint but persistent hint of corruption, of an old malodor. He left the vantage point by the stairs and paced between the control boards and their empty swinging seats. This was the main control room, of that he was certain. From this point all the vast bulk beneath him had been set in motion, sailed here and there. Had it been on the sea, or through the air? The globe shape suggested an airborne craft, but a civilization so advanced as this would surely have left some remains. Ross was willing to believe that he could be much farther back in time than 2000 B.C., but he was still sure that traces of those who could build a thing like this would have existed in the 20th century A.D. Maybe that was how the Reds had found this. Something they had turned up within their country, say, in Siberia, or some of the forgotten corners of Asia, had been a clue. Having had little schooling other than the intensive cramming at the base, and his own informal education, the idea of the race who had created this ship overawed Ross more than he would admit. If the project could find this, turn loose on it the guys who knew about such things. But that was just what they were striving for, and he was the only project man to have found the prize. Somehow, some way, he had to get back, out of this half-buried ship and its ice-bound world, back to where he could find his own people. Perhaps the job was impossible, but he had to try. His survival was considered impossible by the men who had thrown him into the crevice, but here he was. Thanks to the men who had built this ship, he was alive and well. Ross sat down in one of the uncomfortable seats to think, and thus avoided immediate disaster, for he was hidden from the stairs on which sounded the tap of boots. A climber, maybe two, were on their way up, and there was no other exit from the control cabin. Chapter 12 Ross dropped from the web-slung chair to the floor and made himself as small as possible under the platform at the front of the cabin. Here, where there was a smaller control board and two seats placed closely together, the odd, unpleasant odor clung and became stronger to Ross's senses as he waited tensely for the climbers to appear. Though he had searched, there was nothing in sight even faintly resembling a weapon. In a last desperate bid for freedom, he crept back to the stairwell. He had been taught a blow during his training period, one which required a precise delivery and, he had been warned, was often fatal. He would use it now, 
The climber was very close. A cropped head arose through the floor opening, and Ross struck, knowing as his hand chopped against the folds of a fur hood that he had failed. But the impetus of that unexpected blow saved him after all. With a choked cry, the man disappeared, crashing down upon the one following him. A scream and shouts were heard from below, and a shot ripped up the well as Ross scrambled away from it. He might have delayed the final battle, but they had him cornered. He faced that fact bleakly. They need only sit below and let nature take its course. His session in the lifeboat had restored his strength, but a man could not live forever without food and water. However, he had bought himself perhaps a yard of time which must be put to work. Turning to examine the seats, Ross discovered that they could be unhooked from their webbing swings. Freeing all of them, he dragged their weight to the stairwell and jammed them together to make a barricade. It could not hold long against any determined push from below, but he hoped it would deflect bullets if some sharpshooter tried to wing him by ricochet. Every so often there was the crash of a shot and some shouting, but Ross was not going to be drawn out of cover by that. He paced around the control cabin, still hunting for a weapon. The symbols on the levers and buttons were meaningless to him. They made him feel frustrated because he imagined that among that countless array were some that might help him out of the trap if he could only guess their use. Once more he stood by the platform thinking. This was the point from which the ship had been sailed, in the air or on some now frozen sea. These control boards must have given the ship's master the means not only of propelling the vast bulk, but of unloading and loading cargo, lighting, heating, ventilation, and perhaps defense. Of course, every control might be dead now, but he remembered that in the lifeboat the machines had worked successfully, fulfilled expertly the duty for which they had been constructed. The only step remaining was to try his luck. Having made his decision, Ross simply shut his eyes as he had in a very short and almost forgotten childhood, turned around three times, and pointed. Then he looked to see where luck had directed him. His finger indicated a board before which there had been three seats, and he crossed to it slowly, with a sense that once he touched the controls he might inaugurate a chain of events he could not stop. The crash of a shot underlined the fact that he had no other recourse. Since the symbols meant nothing, Ross concentrated on the shapes of the various devices and chose one which vaguely resembled the type of light switch he had always known. Since it was up, he pressed it down, counting to twenty slowly as he waited for a reaction. Below the switch was an oval button marked with two wiggles and a double dot in red. Ross snapped it level with the panel, and when it did not snap back, he felt somehow encouraged. When the two levers flanking that button did not push in or move up and down, Ross pulled them out without even waiting to count off. This time, he had results. A crackling of noise with a sing-song rhythm, the volume of which, low at first, arose to a drone filled the cabin. Ross, deafened by the din, twisted first one lever and then the other until he had brought the sound to a less piercing howl. But he needed action, not just noise. He moved from behind the first chair to the next one. Here were five oval buttons, marked in the same vivid green as that which trimmed his clothing. 
two wiggles, a dot, a double bar, a pair of entwined circles, and a crosshatch. Why make a choice? Recklessness bubbled to the surface, and Ross pushed all the buttons in rapid succession. The results were, in a measure, spectacular. Out of the top of the control board rose a triangle of screen which steadied and stood firm, while across it played a rippling wave of color. Meanwhile, the sing-song became an angry squawking as if in protest. Well, he had something, even if he didn't know what it was. And he had also proved that the ship was alive. However, Ross wanted more than a squawk of exasperation, which was exactly what the noise had become. It almost sounded, Ross decided as he listened, as if he were being expertly chewed out in another language. Yes, he wanted more than a series of squawks and a fanciful display of light waves on a screen. At the section of board before the third and last seat, there was less choice. Only two switches. As Ross flicked up the first, the pattern on the screen dwindled into a brown color shot with cream, in which there was a suggestion of a picture. Suppose one didn't put the switch all the way up. Ross examined the slot in which the bar moved, and now noted a series of tiny point marks along it. Selective? It would not do any harm to see. First he hurried back to the cork of chairs he had jammed into the stairwell. The squawks were now coming only at intervals, and Ross could hear nothing to suggest that his barrier was being forced. He returned to the lever and moved it back two notches, standing open-mouthed at the immediate result. The cream and brown streaks were making a picture. Moving another notch down caused the picture to skitter back and forth on the screen. With memories of TV tuning to guide him, Ross brought the other lever down to a matching position, and the dim and shadowy images leaped into clear and complete focus. But the color was still brown, not the black and white he had expected. Only, he was also looking into a face. Ross swallowed, his hand grasping one of the strings of chair webbing for support. Perhaps because in some ways it did resemble his own, that face was more preposterously non-human. The visage on the screen was sharply triangular, with a small, sharply pointed chin and a jawline running at an angle from a broad upper face. The skin was dark, covered largely with a soft and silky down, out of which hooked a curved and shining nose set between two large round eyes. On top of that astonishing head, the down rose to a peak not unlike a cockatoo's crest. Yet there was no mistaking the intelligence in those eyes, nor the other's amazement at sight of Ross. They might have been staring at each other through a window. Squawk! Squeak! Squawk! The creature in the mirror, on the vision plate, or outside the window, moved its absurdly small mouth in time to those sounds. Ross swallowed again and automatically made answer. Hello? His voice was a weak whistle, and perhaps it did not reach the furry-faced one, for he continued his questions, if questions they were. Meanwhile, Ross, over his first stupefaction, tried to see something of the creature's background. Though the objects were slightly out of focus, he was sure he recognized fittings similar to those about him. He must be in communication with another ship of the same type, and one which was not deserted. 
Furryface had turned his head away to squawk rapidly over his shoulder, a shoulder which was crossed by a belt or sash with an elaborate pattern. Then he got up from his seat and stood aside to make room for the one he had summoned. If Furryface had been a startling surprise, Ross was now to have another. The man who now faced him on the screen was totally different. His skin registered as pale, cream-colored, and his face was far more human in shape, though it was hairless, as was the smooth dome of his skull. When one became accustomed to that egg slickness, the stranger was not bad-looking, and he was wearing a suit which matched the one Ross had taken from the lifeboat. This one did not attempt to say anything. Instead, he stared at Ross long and measuringly, his eyes growing colder and less friendly with every second of that examination. Ross had resented Calgary's back at the project, but the Major could not match Baldy for the sheer weight of unpleasant warning he could pack into a look. Ross might have been startled by Furryface, but now his stubborn streak arose to meet this implied challenge. He found himself breathing hard and glaring back with an intensity which he hoped would get across and prove to Baldy that he would not have everything his own way if he proposed to tangle with Ross. His preoccupation with the stranger on the screen betrayed Ross into the hands of those from below. He heard their attack on the barricade too late. By the time he turned around, the cork of seats was heaved up and a gun was pointing at his middle. His hands went up in small, reluctant jerks as that threat held him where he was. Two of the fur-clad reds climbed into the control chamber. Ross recognized the leader as Ash's double, the man he had followed across time. He blinked for just an instant as he faced Ross and then shouted an order at his companion. The other spun Murdoch around, bringing his hands down behind him to clamp his wrists together. Once again, Ross fronted the screen and saw Baldy watching the whole scene with an expression suggesting that he had been shocked out of his complacent superiority. Ross's captors were staring at the screen and the unearthly man there. Then one flung himself at the control panel and his hands whipped back and forth, restoring to utter silence both screen and room. What are you? The man who might have been Ash spoke slowly in the beaker tongue, drilling Ross with his stare as if by the force of his will alone he could pull the truth out of the prisoner. What do you think I am? Ross countered. He was wearing the uniform of Baldy, and he had clearly established contact with the time owners of this ship. Let that worry the red. But they did not try to answer him. At a signal he was led to the stair. To descend that ladder with his hands behind him was almost impossible, and they had to pause at the next level to unclasp the handcuffs and let him go free. Keeping a gun on him carefully, they hurried along, trying to push the pace while Ross delayed all he could. He realized that in his recognition of the power of the gun back in the control chamber, his surrender to its threat, he had betrayed his real origin. So he must continue to confuse the trail to the project in every possible way left to him. He was sure that this time they would not leave him in the first convenient crevice. He knew he was right when they covered him with a fur parka at the entrance to the ship, once more manacling his hands and dropping a noose leash on him. So they were taking him back to their post here. Well, in the post was the time transporter which could return him to his own kind. 
It would be, it must be possible to get to that. He gave his captors no more trouble, but trudged, outwardly dispirited, along the rutted way through the snow, up the slope and out of the valley. He did manage to catch a good look at the globe ship. More than half of it, he judged, was below the surface of the ground. To be so buried, it must either have lain there a long time, or, if it were an air vessel, crashed hard enough to dig itself that partial grave. Yet Ross had established contact with another ship like it, and neither of the creatures he had seen were human, at least not human in any way he knew. Ross chewed on that as he walked. He believed that those with him were looting the ship of its cargo, and by its size, that cargo must be a large one. But cargo from where? Made by what hands? What kind of hands? En route to what port? And how had the Reds located the ship in the first place? There were plenty of questions and very few answers. Ross clung to the hope that somehow he had endangered the Reds' job here by activating the communication system of the derelict and calling the attention of its probable owners to its fate. He also believed that the owners might take steps to regain their property. Baldy had impressed him deeply during those few moments of silent appraisal, and he knew he would not like to be on the receiving end of any retaliation from the other. Well, now he had only one chance— to keep the Reds guessing as long as he could, and hope for some turn of fate which would allow him to try for the time transport. How the plate operated he did not know, but he had been transferred here from the Beaker Age, and if he could return to that time, escape might be possible. He had only to reach the river and follow it down to the sea, where the sub was to make rendezvous at intervals. The odds were overwhelmingly against him, and Ross knew it. But there was no reason, he decided, to lie down and roll over dead to please the Reds. As they approached the post, Ross realized how much skill had gone into its construction. It looked as if they were merely coming up to the outer edge of a glacier tongue. Had it not been for the track in the snow, there would have been no reason to suspect that the ice covered anything but a thick core of its own substance. Ross was shoved through the white-walled tunnel to the building beyond. He was hurried through the chain of rooms to a door and thrust through, his hands still fastened. It was dark in the cubby and colder than it had been outside. Ross stood still, waiting for his eyes to adjust to the gloom. It was several moments after the door had slammed shut that he caught a faint thud, a dull and hollow sound. Who is here? He used the beaker speech determining to keep to the rags of his cover, which probably was a cover no longer. There was no reply, but after a pause, that distant beat began again. Ross stepped cautiously forward, and by the simple method of running full face into the walls, discovered that he was in a bare cell. He also discovered that the noise lay behind the left-hand wall, and he stood with his ear flat against it, listening. The sound did not have the regular rhythm of a machine in use. There were odd pauses between some blows. Others came in a quick rain. It was as if someone were digging. Were the Reds engaged in enlarging their ice-bound headquarters? Having listened for a considerable time, Ross doubted that, for the sound was too irregular. It seemed almost as if the longer pauses were used to check up on the result of labor. 
Was it the extent of the excavation or the continued preservation of secrecy? Ross slipped down along the wall, his shoulders still resting against it, and rested with his head twisted so he could hear the tapping. Meanwhile, he flexed his wrists inside the hoops which confined them, and folding his hands as small as possible, tried to slip them through the rings. The only result was that he chafed his skin raw to no advantage. They had not taken off his parka, and in spite of the chill about him, he was too warm. Only that part of his body covered by the suit he had taken from the ship was comfortable. He could almost believe that it possessed some built-in conditioning device. With no hope of relief, Ross rubbed his hands back and forth against the wall, scraping the hoops on his wrists. The distant pounding had ceased, and this time the pause lengthened into so long a period that Ross fell asleep, his head falling forward on his chest, his raw wrists still pushed against the surface behind him. He was hungry when he awoke, and with that hunger his rebellion sparked into flame. Awkwardly he got to his feet and lurched along to the door through which he had been thrown, where he proceeded to kick at the barrier. The cushiony stuff forming the soles of his tights muffled most of the force of those blows, but some noise was heard outside, for the door opened and Ross faced one of the guards. Food! I want to eat! He put into the beaker language all the resentment boiling in him. The fellow, ignoring him, reached in a long arm, and nearly tossing the prisoner off balance, dragged him out of the cell. Ross was marched into another room to face what appeared to be a tribunal. Two of the men there he knew, Ash's double and the quiet man who had questioned him back in the other time station. The third, clearly one of greater authority, regarded Ross bleakly. Who are you? the quiet man asked. Rossa, son of Gurdy, and I would eat before I make talk with you. I have not done any wrong that you should treat me as a barbarian who has stolen salt from the trading post. You are an agent, the leader corrected him dispassionately, of whom you will tell us in due time. But first you shall speak of the ship, of what you found there, and why you meddled with the controls. Wait a moment before you refuse, my young friend. He raised his hand from his lap, and once again Ross faced an automatic. Ah, I see that you know what I hold. Odd knowledge for an innocent Bronze Age trader. And please have no doubts about my hesitation to use this. I shall not kill you, naturally, the man continued, but there are certain wounds which supply a maximum of pain and little serious damage. Remove his parka, Kershav. Once more Ross was unmanacled, the fur stripped from him. His questioner carefully studied the suit he wore under it. Now you will tell us exactly what we wish to hear. There was a confidence in that statement which chilled Ross. Major Calgary's had displayed its like. Ash had it in another degree, and certainly it had been present in Baldy. There was no doubt that the speaker meant exactly what he said. He had at his command methods which would wring from his captive the full sum of what he wanted, and there would be no consideration for that captive during the process. His implied threat struck as cold as the glacial air, and Ross tried to meet it with an outward show of uncracked defenses. 
he decided to pick and choose from his information, feeding them scraps to stave off the inevitable. Hope dies very hard, and Ross, having been pushed into corners long before his work at the project, had had considerable training in verbal fencing with hostile authority. He would volunteer nothing. Let it be pulled from him reluctant word by word. He would spin it out as long as he could and hope that time might fight for him. You are an agent. Ross accepted this statement as one he would neither affirm nor deny. You came to spy under the cover of a barbarian trader. Smoothly, without pause, the man changed language in mid-sentence, slipping from the beaker speech into English. But long experience in meeting the dangerous with an expression of complete lack of comprehension was Ross's weapon now. He stared somewhat stupidly at his interrogator with that bewildered, boyish look he had so long cultivated to bemuse enemies in his past. Whether he could have held out long against the other's skill, for Ross possessed no illusions concerning the type of examiner he now faced, he was never to know. Perhaps the drastic interruption that occurred the next moment saved for Ross a measure of self-esteem. There was a distant boom, hollow and thunderous. Underneath and around them, the floor, walls, and ceiling of the room moved as if they had been pried from their setting of ice and were being rolled about by the exploring thumb and forefinger of some impatient giant.